Hello and welcome to The Rate Debate. I'm Darren Langer, co-head of Fixed Income at Yarra Capital, and joining me, as always, is my co-portfolio manager, Chris Rands. Hello, everyone. Well, it's the first Tuesday of May, and that means the RBA has just met. And I think, Chris, for the first time in a very long time, I am absolutely surprised at what happened today. The RBA has uh, hiked another 25 basis points pretty much after last month saying they wanted to wait and see what was going to happen. Most of the language in the statement talked about everything slowing down or, or getting better and that they still felt the need to um, tighten a further 25 basis points. Very rarely am I this surprised. Uh, often I'm wrong, but very rarely am I this surprised. What did you think? I thought it was pretty surprising as well, mostly just because of what they said last month. So last month with their decision, they, they said they were going to pause so that they could reassess the data and then, I guess, make decisions from there. And I think the really confusing thing for what they've done is it doesn't feel like waiting a month is long enough to reassess what's going on. If you look at the data that did come out, the biggest piece of that was probably inflation and that was slightly below expectations. So even though they've said we're going to reassess the data and, and inflation's showed some signs of slowing, they've kind of stepped up and, and hiked again, which is a little bit strange given just what they've said. Yeah, I, I think the other thing that's surprising to me is that we've had three statements in a row that have kind of given completely different messages. You know, we had the, the final hike prior to the pause, which was you know relatively hawkish. Then you had them come out and say, well, monetary policy works with lags. We need to wait and see what happens. Generally, you know, my guesstimate would be that's more than one month. And then this one, you know, they're basically saying that the everything is slowing down, yet they still felt that it wasn't happening fast enough. I'm not sure how much faster they're expecting it to change in a month, but here we are. Yeah, I, I think for a bank that's had a fair amount of criticism about their communication skills recently, uh, this wasn't a probably a good start. They've kind of shown again why it's really hard to read into what they're doing in some of these minutes. If I step back though and I guess look at maybe the reasons why they would have done it, two kind of jump out at me. The first is that the unemployment rate remained very strong and there was a kind of, I guess, a blockbuster unemployment figure last month and house prices have started rising again. But, you know, when you look at both of those um, outcomes, I think it's a bit hard to say one month of strong data is enough to get us back on track, which is, again, why it's surprising why they didn't just pause a little bit longer. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, again, they also made a big deal out of services inflation picking up whilst in the same breath talking about goods inflation coming off. I would have thought if you've got two effects cancelling one another, that's not necessarily a problem, and that's that's probably the history of the last 10 years. The, the unemployment is obviously a key thing, but as we've talked about before, you know, it tends to lag. They also mentioned um, wages uh, again. You know, we're still waiting to see this magical wages pickup that they keep talking about. They've waited months and months and months for that to occur, yet uh, they can't wait another month to tighten rates just seems very surprising. Yeah, and you know, when when you look at that, I think it just goes back to what they were talking about probably in the middle of last year that they are expecting wages to pick up eventually, and that's the thing that's going to cause inflation to remain sticky. You know, we've talked about that at length in the past and we don't think that's going to be true, but clearly the RBA does think that's what's going to happen. One of the things that uh, has probably happened over the last couple of months is the well, last couple of weeks, I should say, is that the RBA review has come out, which was fairly scathing of the RBA's uh, policy responses over not just the last two years, but but over a long period of time. Phil Lowe, however, came out and said that he, he still wants to remain governor <laughs> going forward. That would seem untenable based on what I read, but 
you know, have they really been as bad as what was made out? Or, you know, uh, do they have a case to, to make that perhaps, you know, they're being unfairly treated? I think when I kind of look at the review and, and what was going on, I kind of try to split it into, I guess, two sections. One is communication, which clearly we don't think they do a very good job of. And then second is just how the, the economy is performed. If you look at that second one and say, how is the RBA doing versus its peers? It doesn't look like we're we're doing any differently from anyone else, which makes it a little bit surprising why they're causing kind of catching so much flack. So to put that in perspective, some other central banks who aren't getting the same response as the RBA, in the US, inflation rate is 5% and the unemployment rate is 3.5%, not that much different to where we are, and they've moved rates 500 basis points. If you move to the UK, they've got an inflation rate of 10% and a 3.8% unemployment rate, and they've moved rates 400 basis points. And then if you move to somewhere like Canada, they've got a 4.5% inflation rate and a 5% unemployment rate, moving rates 425 basis points. So, you know, when you look at what the RBA has done, they've now moved 375. Inflation's kind of in the middle of that pack and the unemployment rate is the lowest. From an economic perspective, they're not actually doing that badly. On top of that, when we look at kind of our economic indicators, Australia seems to be performing the strongest. You know, there's talk of being able to avoid a recession here. It does look a little bit unfair just what they're getting put on their heads for, for how well the economy's performed. Yeah, I guess the the biggest thing that sort of comes out of the the whole thing is that the the structure of the board seemed to come under the most sort of criticism that perhaps the the people on the board are not monetary policy experts relative to uh, sort of what we see overseas. You know, the the idea is to split out the the monetary policy side away from the Reserve Bank, still have the Reserve Bank sitting on that body, but but have a, a completely separate body. Are there really that many monetary policy experts out there that are missing out on the action? You know, that 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 I sort of you know I don't disagree. Maybe it's a good thing, but I'm not sure we really have that many other people out there that would do a much better job. Well, I think that's why. I kind of point at those other central banks. If you look at, say, the US or the UK, they've moved rates slightly higher than us, not that much, but their economy is performing no better. So to say that the RBA board is the reason that we've kind of had these bad outcomes occur, I think is is not a correct statement. The inflation has come mostly from kind of offshore and overstimulating the economy from both the fiscal and the monetary policy side. So it doesn't seem like if we had have just replaced them with monetary policy experts, it would have been any different. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see what comes from it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly, uh, I think some of it is probably past history um, where perhaps criticism of not cutting quick enough in, in the past has probably come back to, to bite them. But, you know, again, I, I think, as we've sort of said before, communication to me is really the, the bane of the RBA. They still keep communicating at too high a level. And today's statement really was a great indication of that because I read it and still don't know what they're trying to do. <laughs> I, I think just on that communication point, this, I think, is the area where it probably is feel low that is going to bear a lot of the, I guess, grunt of, of what's going on. Compared to central banks offshore, you really don't hear many of the Australian board members talk about monetary policy. If you look in, say, the United States, for example, normally those board members are out there basically every week making statements about what they think is coming for monetary policy. If you look at the RBA, you very rarely hear for anyone that's not feel low. So the communication troubles that they have had, I think, is really about some of the things Phil Lowe said rather than what the board's done over the past kind of 24 months. Yeah, I think there's also 
perhaps a, a misunderstanding that more communication equals good communication. I mean, if you look at the Federal Reserve, I mean, they're out there talking every every second day, but I don't necessarily think their message is any clearer. But, uh, you know, that's for others to decide, I guess. Yeah, and I, I guess just the very last point on this, it is, I guess, important to remember that forward guidance is a policy tool. So while everybody is very upset that Phil Lowe said that rates were going to remain at zero until 2024 and was wrong, when he needed interest rates low, that was one of the policies that he had at his disposal. So using that, maybe they don't want to use it in the future because the communication backlash is too bad, but it is a tool they can use to keep the curve flat, rates down and get the economy pumping again. Yeah, I totally agree. But personally, I hope we never ever have to do that again. I think, again, that that kind of extreme policy measures has been part of the problem, trying to predict in advance a bad outcome and and then trying to stop it um, hasn't been overly successful. I'm not sure what the alternative is, but, you know, that that constantly trying to outthink, you know, the likely outcomes of bad, bad decisions or bad outcomes just doesn't seem to work. Yeah. And I guess the positive from here is usually in a recession, rates fall anywhere from 400 to 600 basis points. So if we do kind of hit a bumpy economic time again, at least they're going to have about 400 points up their sleeve to start cutting rather than having to rely on, you know, QE, TFF and all the other policies that they had to use last time. Fingers crossed. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, the the whole topic of inflation is still a hotbed of discussion out there. There's as many people that see it never ending as there are those calling it back down to a more normal range. I mean, everything, as you said, we've seen points to inflation coming off. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going to get back towards the RBA's band, but, you know, it's more likely to be sub five and even possibly, you know, down around 4% much sooner than a lot of people are predicting. What are your thoughts? Is that really going to happen? Is it sustainable? Or are we just going to, you know, end up in the same boat 12 months down the track with, you know, still bubbling inflation? Most of the lead indicators that we use and look at have been pointing to inflation coming off, but probably down towards that four, three and a half percent rate rather than kind of back sub two, which we would have seen, you know, pre-COVID. So a few things that we can kind of look at for this, as the RBA's kind of mentioned, good prices are starting to moderate. You're seeing kind of shipping demand, you're seeing rail loads and export volumes out of some of those emerging markets starting to drop, which suggests that kind of goods price inflation that we saw from you know 12 to 18 months ago is pretty much going to be gone and if not probably going to start dragging on inflation soon and on top of that you're starting to see things like commodities drop chinese ppi drop we've seen in the us their inflation starting to fall a little bit and as well as i mentioned before in canada so you now kind of have a wide array of indicators suggesting that it's going to be back towards that you know four percent level whether it keeps falling from there I think you're going to have to keep an eye on some of the lead indicators to just kind of check what happens. But certainly it looks like they've broken the back of, you know, the 7 8% rates that we're seeing over the past 12 months. Yeah, one of the things that sits in the back of my mind is that you know, we're, we're talking about services inflation, again, running a lot stronger than, than goods inflation. That is probably the one thing that is linked mostly to employment. I mean, services equal people in most cases. You know, I, I think... You know, if we do start to see unemployment tick up, which, you know, given the the outlook for um, P2 
people coming into the country. So we're we're talking you know, somewhere between two and three hundred thousand people coming into the country over the next year or so. You know, you've got to think that unemployment does start to tick up a little bit higher. You know, does that then take the edge off that services inflation? I think that's going to be a little bit harder to tell because you can kind of, I think, look at some of these things from different perspectives. So, you know, as you said, the immigration number that is expected for the Australian economy over the next 12 months is actually quite large. So the forecast at the moment is for net immigration to be 400,000 people, which compares to about 235,000 pre-COVID. So, you know, just a huge number of people coming into the economy. I would have thought that that's going to take some of the pressure out of wages, potentially pull unemployment a little bit higher, like you said. But equally, we know that rents kind of storming higher at the moment. And if you have another 400,000 people into the economy, that's probably just going to be another layer of pressure in that kind of rents market. So I think over the next kind of 24 months, it will start easing. And as unemployment starts to pick up, that it will kind of drop some of that services inflation. But there's going to be a few different factors, you know, whether it's rents, how wages react to that immigration, that's really hard to tell at the moment. The problem I have with yeah, rents is that yes, they're high, but you can put interest rates up however high you like, and it's not going to make any difference to rents. Um, that that's purely a, a supply function. I'm not really sure what this last rate hike is actually trying to prevent. That's sort of where I come down to. Yes, it, you can trash the um, consumer side of the economy even more, but people still have to <laughs> still have to have a roof over their head and and things like that. And I think you know it's going to prove again to be be a mistake in the long run, but. I guess we'll see. Yeah, and I guess, though, from the RBA's perspective, their forecasts are saying that GDP is going to increase by about one and a quarter percent this year and then 2% through to 2025. So, you know, when you stack all the forecasts that they have on top of each other, they're basically saying there's going to be a 2% growth rate, there's going to be a 4% inflation rate, and unemployment rate's going to be around 4.5% as well. All of those things, I guess, are lining up for them to say, let's keep hiking. Whereas we kind of look at it and say, the rates work with a lag, you're not giving this enough time to really figure out whether those forecasts are going to be correct or not. Yeah, and I think the other thing you need to point out is that that a lot of that GDP growth is just going to come by bringing more and more people in there. It's not necessarily going to lift overall GDP and it's probably not going to lift productivity like the RBA wants. So it's going to be one of those things where, you know, it looks all right at a surface level, but underneath it, it can look a little bit sick, which has been, you know, pretty consistent even pre-COVID. So I, I guess the, the other thing, you know, we love house prices. It's the one thing we talk more about than anything else. We have seen signs of that starting to pick up, which probably is, it's not surprising because I guess there is a fair amount of pent up demand. But given our sort of feeling that, you know, rents are very much supply demand driven, but housing's driven by affordability, you know, house prices in Sydney haven't come off as much as what they could have. Now they're starting to go back up. That's not going to help with the affordability of homes after you've just jacked up interest rates as much as what you have. I mean, where are people getting all this money from? That really beats me. If you look at Sydney at the moment, I believe the house price to income ratio is 13 and a half times, which is the second highest in the world. So, you know, as you said, house prices have started to kind of rebound a bit. I think they've been up now two months in a row. And it's certainly surprising to me just how strong that's looked. When I do the serviceability calculations, this is looking like one of the most expensive housing markets that we've seen for a very long time. So if you think of a person earning $150,000, they would take home after tax about $2,000 a week. 
And usually when you think of servicing kind of rules of thumbs, about 40% of your income should be going to housing. The average person earning 150K a year could probably service about $800 a week. When rates were 2%, that means they could borrow about $950,000. Now that rates are mortgage rates, that is, are over 5.5%, they can borrow probably borrow about 625000 That's a reduction of 35% in terms of the borrowing capacity that those kind of average households in the Sydney market would be looking to borrow. So certainly house prices dropping only 10% and kind of not falling in line with that borrowing power, I think is a little bit surprising to me. And I would have thought that it probably had another 5 to 10% left in it before it really kind of reflected just what rates have done. It always comes back to you've still got to be able to afford, not only afford the loan, but be able to actually grant it the loan. And given you know the metrics for actually getting a home loan, you wonder how the banks can actually um, come up with some of the lending numbers that are needed to, to get into this you know, Sydney market, but but quite a few other markets around Australia as well. You know, it, it's still a mystery to us, but um, I'm sure one of these days uh, we'll figure out what the hell's going on. But uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, that, that I guess is, is probably one of the more surprising outcomes. And I guess, you know, maybe that's in the back of the RBA's mind too. They really don't want to see house prices take off again. Yeah, and no, I think, you know, if you look at the positives of the housing market, if we just kind of step away from that pure calculation of how much can people borrow, then as we said before, rents are rising pretty strongly at the moment. And, you know, from the anecdotal evidence that you listen to that you see on the news um, websites, it is relatively hard to rent and find properties at the moment. And on top of that, we are kind of, as we expected, talking about this 400,000 net immigration figure, which would just add more demand to housing. So, you know, maybe it's not just about rates at the moment, it's about how tight that rental market is. And if we have more immigration, then perhaps the housing market can be stronger than just what those kind of raw calculations that I described would have you expect. Certainly doesn't uh, bode well for the consumer discretionary market, though, I would imagine, because <laughs> you know, money's got to come from somewhere. So if your mortgage is higher, you know, they've got to cut back something else. And maybe maybe we do go to 50 or 60% of income to to cover a house price, but yeah, it doesn't sound like it's a, a great life for people. Well, that's it for this month. And sadly, this will be Chris's final episode of The Rate Debate. After nearly 12 years of working together, he has decided to move on to a more global roll-up in Singapore. It's certainly been a wild ride at times, but never a dull moment. I look forward to seeing how the next phase of your career plays out, Chris, and it's been an absolute pleasure working with you. Thanks, Darren. It'll be nice to be doing something that's not just worrying about what the RBA does and their poor communication. But equally, I wanted to say, I guess, thank you for the past 12 years. You've always been a good mentor to me, and you've always probably given me more leeway than I should have been allowed. <laughs> Let's not say that too loudly. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in next month, where I'll be joined by Tim Tui, our Head of Macro and Strategy, to help deliver our latest thoughts on the RBA's June rate decision and provide an update on what's been happening in markets. If you ever want to suggest topics, we can be contacted for the rate debate at yarracm.com. So tune in next month when we deliver our latest thoughts on the RBA's rate decision and provide an update on what's happening in markets. Until then, stay safe. The Rate Debate podcast content may contain general advice. Before acting on anything in this podcast, you should consider your own objectives, financial situation or needs, and seek the advice of an appropriately qualified financial advisor.